Hi everyone, I'm Stephanie, a mom to a Mito fighter. On our podcast, Energy in Action, we talk all things Mito, and I'm glad you're here to learn and to be part of our community. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Energy in Action. I thought I'd take a minute to reintroduce myself to any of our new listeners who have found our podcast. My name is Stephanie, and I'm the host of the Energy in Action podcast. And on our show, we talk about all things rare disease and mitochondrial disease. A little bit more about me. You can think of this as the handshake before the hug. I'm the mom to three, and one of them has a rare genetic mutation. I'm also the grandma to a rare disease patient. Neither of my zebras have a related condition, and both of them are considered de novo. I know, what are the odds? What compels me to host this podcast is my need to find my tribe. As an early adopter of rare disease and mitochondrial dysfunction, I was often alone, never understood. My peers couldn't relate to me. Our medical team was often confounded, and even my own family wasn't sure what was going on or how to help. When Ted started his path of being an undiagnosed patient, the internet wasn't nearly as robust as it is now. Social media wasn't even a thing in the year 2000. I felt isolated, scared, mad, and also curious. As many of you rare parents know, the good days can trick you into thinking that you have all your ducks lined up, when in actuality, the ducks have all wandered and most of them have lost their minds. So let's fast forward to 2007. We live in Minnesota. The University of Minnesota had told us that Ted was unsolvable, uncurable, and untreatable, that his lifespan would be 10 to 12 years, and that we could just take him home and love him, and that was the best they could offer. I began my feeble research on the interwebs and somehow found Dr. Mark Corson at Tufts in Boston. It was at Dr. Corson's office where I found MitoAction. In 2008, we were at one of our biannual visits, and Dr. Corson handed me a clip art newsletter that said, We started this parent organization called MitoAction. We're mostly an East Coast group. I don't think anyone will mind if you sign up. And so I did. And I have hung on to MitoAction like a lifeboat ever since. It is here where I have found other families who speak my language, other parents who understand my heartache, my joy, and my absolute frantic need to find an answer to, and to find a treatment. It's also here where I found hope, something I was sure never existed. And as a matter of fact, people would tell you I used to refer to hope as a four-letter word. In 2013, my family's world would turn upside down, backwards, and inside out. In February, Ted had a serious illness and was septic from a line infection. We as a family had to truly wait on Ted and his body. There were sleepless nights in the hospital, frantic calls back and forth to Dr. Corson, a lot of pacing, and a lot of waiting. For 23 days, Ted's body would improve and then backslide, improve and then backslide. It was when Dr. Corson finally said, you have to listen. His body isn't responding to typical measures because his body isn't typical. They finally started the D10, and it was like a wilted flower coming back to life. Home and on IV meds for another eight weeks and rest. And I mean lots of rest. It was during this time where we saw some major neurological concerns and Ted went under what would soon become one of the first of many MRIs. They discovered a growth on or near Ted's pituitary gland. Was this just another piece to his puzzle or was this something entirely different? As Ted's health never really went back to a former baseline, my spidey senses got the best of me and I started Googling. 
I found a research study happening at the NIH. On a Friday night, I quickly sent all the necessary documents because us rare parents have all the necessary documents uploaded and ready to send on a moment's notice, and I hit the submit button, thinking it would be weeks until I heard back from them. The next day, Saturday, is when our world stopped again. Ted's dad, my husband of 23 years, died suddenly of a heart attack. He went to work that day and never came home. And that's an entirely different podcast. However, the very next Monday, I heard back from the NIH. They wanted to see Ted ASAP and could we be there on Thursday? I bluntly said, no, I'm burying my husband tomorrow. I now realize that saying things like that is a bit abrupt. Thankfully, my sister intercepted the phone call, took down some very valuable information, and two weeks later, Ted and I were on our way to D.C. It was there where we met Dr. Peter McGuire and became part of the mini-study and the UDN, or Undiagnosed Disease Network. Now here's a little bit more about Ted. Ted was born in December of 1999. He's a Y2K baby. For any of you who remember the Y2K pandemonium, it's okay to smirk and smile. During my pregnancy with Ted, I was diagnosed with HELP syndrome, and I was on bed rest at 19 weeks. So not even halfway through and trouble began to brew. While the medical professionals made sure I was safe and that Ted continued to bake, the basic thought was everything would come out in the wash as soon as he was delivered. However, the last trimester soon became a challenge. I went into preterm labor, and Ted was given the shot to speed up his lung development. At 35 weeks, my doctors felt that my body couldn't take it any longer, and I was in jeopardy, and there were concerns that Ted was now on the struggle bus. I clearly remember the doctors telling me, a quiet baby is a sick baby. So it was decided that the week between Christmas and New Year, he would be born. On December 26th, my water started leaking, and his birthday of 1227 was declared. Ted was a planned C-section. My first child was in an emergency C-section, and back then, that dictated the rest of your pregnancies and how your deliveries would go. Also, my platelet count was under 10,000, so there was a lot of risk there as well. Funny side note to his delivery, my OB and I had become friends over the course of my pregnancy, and he asked if I would mind having a resident observe the procedure. I told him an entire circus could be in the OR as long as we accomplished the mission. Also, Ted's dad was a type 1 diabetic, and the anesthesiologist didn't want to have any sort of trouble in the OR, so he asked dad to check his blood sugar before gowning up. Sure enough, the blood sugar was low, so we had to wait for him to eat an entire turkey sandwich. Once everyone was gowned and in their places, the procedure started, and just as they were ready to pull Ted out, the resident fainted right on top of me. My husband had to peel this person off and the anesthesiologist leaned up and over my head and started pushing on my stomach to help eject Ted. Once Ted was delivered, he was quickly assessed and his APGARs were seven and nine. Absolutely no worries. However, I started to bleed a little more than they had anticipated and the room became a swirl of activity. Dad went with Ted and I was stabilized. Once out of recovery, I was met abruptly by a nurse who told me that Ted had just been admitted to the NICU to be evaluated. And that's where the journey begins. Hi, Ted. Welcome to the podcast. And just to clarify, Ted is 
the youngest. He has two older sisters and his dog Remington is our golden retriever. And full disclosure, he's probably the dumbest dog we've ever owned. Wouldn't you agree, Ted? Top three, maybe. Ted's being generous tonight. So Ted, why don't we uh, start off with telling our listeners about our first trip to the NIH in 2013. I mean, that's technically not our first trip, but that's the first trip of when we started being part of the um, UDN. So what do you remember most about that very first trip out there? Probably flying out there and staying in a hotel near campus and just kind of lots of doctor's appointments and being in a special machine called the bod egg or pot egg and lots of blood work following that and then sleeping with like a weird plastic turtle shell over me so they can capture the CO2 and see what gases I'm emitting. Yeah, they did a lot of testing. And I remember just a lot of like interview type questions with Dr. McGuire and a lot of his colleagues just really asking us questions about, you know, how did we get there? And one of the things that intrigued the researchers and and why they brought us out there was because Ted had a really unique immune system. Throughout Ted's entire life, his immune system was always on the brink of failure. He had never gone a year of his life without being hospitalized for a pneumonia or some sort of upper respiratory infection. And it was his immune system that really intrigued Dr. McGuire. And that's what prompted him for us to go out there. And while we were telling Dr. McGuire about all of your illnesses. Ted, do you remember, you know, just doing the recount of your your life, your history about, yep, and then I was in the hospital and yep, this happened? Yeah. At that time, Dr. McGuire decided to run one final blood panel on us or on Ted. And um, we were dismissed and and said that we would be back uh, in a few weeks because they wanted time to analyze all of the results and then come up with a game plan. And also at that time, they gave Ted a flu shot. Do you remember that? I do. No, they referred to it as the super flu shot because it was a a mega dose of what the general population was getting. And the theory behind it was, is they had a hunch, an unproven hunch at that time, that Ted's immune system really needed more support. So Ted, do you remember what we found out on our return visit when they wanted to take your blood again to see how your body had reacted to the flu shot? Yeah, I basically delete all flu shots prior and they don't stick. Right. So he has what they call a robust reaction. It's like a firework. He has a big reaction to any vaccination, but then they all quickly dissipate. And had we not had medical records documenting that he had been given all of his childhood vaccinations... No one would have ever known because he didn't show any sort of titers or any sort of cellular memory of ever having any of these vaccinations. So that was like the first clue or the first piece of the puzzle that we weren't really sure about with Ted on what that all meant. I think we felt better knowing that somebody was able to confirm what we kind of had a gut feeling all along. Don't you think? Absolutely. So the first probably the first year and a half of being part of the mini study, we did a lot of back and forth from Minnesota to DC, where we would go stay for two, three days, come back. Ted being the age that he was sort of eliminated us from staying at what's called the Children's Inn. Just think of it as a giant Ronald McDonald house. So we stayed, one time we stayed in the cloisters. Do you remember that? There's like that apartment building right on campus where the students stayed. Monster or nun house, yep. 
the haunted yeah. house. Yeah. Yeah. It was where it was actually where nuns used to live back in the days uh, in the early times of the NIH. So that was an interesting stay. But the NIH is always very generous with how they support their families. And we just happened to get to stay at the cloisters that one time. But it was during one of those visits where they started realizing that Ted's immune system might be a bigger piece of the puzzle than what we had originally thought or ever even thought about. And Dr. Uh, McGuire asked if Ted had ever been on IVIG. And I said yes, because in 2007, Ted did a course of IVIG. And do you remember doing that, Ted, at all? You were kind of young. Uh, yep, at the Infusion Treatment Center. Yep. And how? And do you remember what the like what happened when you were doing that, and like why we only did it one time? Just about as sick as can be afterwards, and just didn't seem to help. And the cons outweighed the pros. Definitely, the cons outweighed the pros on that one. I remember thinking to myself, what have I done? I brought in a semi-normal looking child and brought home a child that was four shades of green and slept for almost 27 hours. And so we we recounted that experience to Dr. McGuire and he definitely took note of it and came back with a proposal to start a different type of IVIG and that was called Hyzentra. And at first we were both kind of reluctant to talk about Hyzentra, weren't we, Ted? Yes, Yep. Yes. And I think Ted's biggest obstacle with Hyzentra was it was a sub-Q uh, injection, which meant, and it was five needles that went under, just underneath the skin on his abdomen. And that just didn't sound very appealing, did it? No, it did not. It kind of left big welts on me and just, you have to be careful if you're going to lift up with on something, you're going to press it weird. And... You had to lay still for like eight hours. So it was, we uh, worked out with a home care uh, program or company here in Minnesota, and Ted did his Hyzentra on Sunday nights. And most patients do once a month, but Dr. McGuire, uh, we had worked it so that we did it, was it, I think it was every other week. Yep. And so every other Sunday was just kind of our, our down day, and Ted would get hooked up to Hyzentra. And we would pre-medicate him with a whole bunch of Benadryl and Tylenol because the side effects of the Hyzentra were headaches, kind of like a hive-like reaction, and nausea, wasn't it? Those were the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. So we did Hyzentra, or I should say Ted did Hyzentra, and we he stayed on the Hyzentra for almost two years of the every other week protocol. And during that time... We were still going back and forth out to D.C. Ted was still getting his super flu shots. He was also getting a pneumonia vaccine every year that most people usually get once every five or once every 10 years. But we found it was beneficial for Ted to get it every year. And the other thing uh, Dr. McGuire's team noticed was that Ted was, since starting the Hyzentra, Ted was starting to hold onto his vaccines a little bit longer. And we noticed as a family that Ted wasn't being hospitalized for pneumonia or upper respiratory infections, correct? Yep. Less hospitalizations and more free time in the fall and winter. Yep. And for any of you who don't know what IVIG is, it's where they take cells from a, a roughly a thousand different donors and mix together all of what they've been exposed to and then you get like a little microdose of what everybody's been exposed to in your community. So it's like your body just gets this blast of 
Oh, I can't even remember the word right now. It's like an assault, basically, of all the things that go around in the community. And the theory is, is that your body then will produce its own antibodies to rise to the occasion and and build their army. And slowly but surely, Ted's body started to do that. So while we were working on that piece of the puzzle, it had also been confirmed that Ted had a tumor on his pituitary gland. And side effects from that were starting to pop up. One of it was Ted wasn't producing enough thyroid hormones and he wasn't producing any testosterone. And so do you remember what courses of action we started first with those things? Uh, Lots of testosterone treatments and just kind of every six months uh, MRI. Yep, we started doing more MRIs to see if there was any growth and then obviously more lab work to see if his body was responding at all to any of the medications. And it was kind of a bit of sorcery because sometimes it looked like his thyroid had actually started to participate and things would look great, but then there would be no testosterone. And so then they would increase the testosterone and then the thyroid would shut off. It was this constant seesaw of trying to find the balance of what was going to put Ted into a a mode of operating efficiently with the least amount of medical intervention. And so this was about 2016. So we had known about the tumor for three years. In about 2016, Dr. McGuire and you and I kind of decided after meeting with a few other doctors at the NIH that that was just something we had to put on the back burner. Do you remember that where we felt like we weren't going to make much of a difference and there were too many other things at play right now that we really needed to focus on and we were seeing too many positive results from the Hyzentra and getting levocarnitine infusions on a weekly basis and really being consistent with your mitococktail. It was also at this time, Ted, do you remember that when we decided to not have you in public school and do online school? Yeah. Yeah, like you were like one of the first distance learners. <laughs> it's a whole different learning process, kind of not ideal at one point, but it was also even on my down days when I have zeroed a little energy, I can still get up and function and go to school. Yep, Ted was still able to participate and stay up to speed on his academics, and he was able to graduate with his class. But by keeping Ted out of what I affectionately call the Petri dish, we really allowed Ted's body to rest. And I, we all believe now that that was probably the best intervention that we did was just taking him out of the Petri dish entirely allowing his body to rest and giving it some of those external reinforcements like the levocarnitine infusion, the fluids, and the Hyzentra. Wouldn't you agree, Ted? 100%. Because what happened that spring when we went to the NIH? What did Dr. McGuire talk to us about? Do you remember? Uh, Most of my lab results came back normal, and he said it was the first time in 16 years that I haven't been completely sick. Yep, and he also said... I think we could try Ted not being in his wheelchair full time. Do you remember that? Yep. And you and I were both very skeptical because we're of the belief that don't rock the boat. We had things going in the right direction. Ted's, even his personality had changed. He had really kind of come to life. Um, He was participating more in family things. He was participating more in things that he enjoyed. The thought of utilizing more energy by not using his chair was concerning 
but we really had a lot of faith. And Dr. McGuire at this point had not led us astray. And so what did we do? We ditched the chair. We ditched the chair. We came home, we parked the chair at the garage, and I think we took it pretty slow and steady. We didn't uh, jump out into the community and run off to the Mall of America or do anything insane like that. There was there were some struggles at first, wouldn't you say? Yeah. There were some times where Ted got really tired. There was a lot of leg aches in the beginning, a lot of hip ache. A lot of backache from just utilizing those muscles differently. Yep. Yep. And we had to get different AFOs. The NIH uh, made him, it was like when they first started using, was it cork and memory foam? I believe so. Yeah, it was a pretty cool combination. And that seemed to be uh, a winner for you by just having those specialized AFOs in your shoes sort of changed your posture and really helped with the knee and, and hip pain. Yes, it did. Yep. And so that was almost six years ago, and you haven't been in your chair since. No, knock on wood. Do you ever regret that? No, not once. Even though you have experienced a lot of pain and a lot of fatigue, do you feel that you're making the best choices for you, for the lifestyle that you want to be living? I feel like it. I do too. I think I think we're making good choices for you. So that, if you want to go back in time a little bit, Ted graduated from high school and he was enrolled in our local community college. He loves to be outdoors, so he's in an urban forestry program. And uh, March of 2020 happened and we went on lockdown, didn't we, Ted? Oh, yeah. And um, I'm a little fanatical and we took lockdown like it was our job. And Ted and I basically became bunker buddies, and we really didn't leave for weeks. Alcatraz is a word for it. (laughs) Yeah, Alcatraz was a word for it. But we knew, because Ted has a colony of mice at the NIH that are genetically modified to replicate Ted as best as they can. And so we knew that COVID would be detrimental to Ted. And we knew that it was serious, and um, until... We could find a safer route. Ted was pretty much on lockdown. Like, I don't think you even saw your sisters for a few months. No. No. So once the vaccines became available, uh, there was quite the discussion with how to handle that with Ted, knowing that he had that unique ability to not retain vaccination. We had a lot of discussions back and forth with his team on how what route to go. And it was decided that Ted was going to get the Pfizer vaccine. And I, as his main caregiver, got the dollar store version, J&J. And his one sister who did move home with us that summer, she got Moderna. And so we all kind of had a little bit different just as a way to kind of test Ted's immune system and to see how everything went. And Ted, have any of us had COVID? Not that we're aware of. Not that we're aware of. And we've all had our antibodies tested a few times. And Ted and I are not showing any signs of ever having COVID. Ted's been vaccinated and boosted about as many times as he can. And so far, so good, right? 100%. No symptoms. But another thing that happened uh, right after or during COVID was Ted's pituitary tumor uh, really became an issue, didn't it? Yes, it did. It started affecting me at work and in school. And what kind of symptoms were you having? A lot of dizziness, headaches, migraines. Loss of appetite, memory loss. He lost over 20 pounds in less than a month. And so 
even though I, removing the tumor wasn't considered an elective surgery, it was still very hard to get something like that scheduled during COVID. And it took almost, what, seven months of a lot of observation, a lot of medications, a lot of testing before the neurosurgeon finally said, what did he say? Do you remember? We're calling it quits. I was going to use a more blunt term, but yeah. Yep, he did. And so Ted was admitted to the University of Minnesota and they told me it would be a five to six hour procedure. But, you know, Ted, he can't ever do anything by the book. And it ended up being nine and a half hours. And oh, we forgot to, to say that he got admitted. He got the everything ready, set, go. They had him on the gurney ready to go. And they canceled his surgery because of COVID. There weren't enough nurses in the hospital. So when he was out of the recovery room, there wasn't a nurse available in the ICU to take him. They didn't have staff. And so it wasn't safe to do the procedure. And they canceled his procedure at 4.30 in the afternoon. So we went home. We had to come back the bright and early the next morning and start all over again. And the, the thought was we would have, Ted would have surgery in the morning and that would guarantee him nursing staff for second shift nursing. No, it did not. It did not. Surgery, his surgery got bumped and he ended up going into the OR at 3.30 in the afternoon. And by the time the almost nine hours until he finally got to recovery. His surgeon came out and I was the only one in the waiting room because I had refused to leave, even though the security guard told me numerous times I had to leave because of COVID precautions. I said, nope, I get to stay until the surgeon comes out. There wasn't a nurse for Ted in the ICU. And so he had to stay in the PACU overnight until they could secure staffing for morning. But I think it all went fairly well, don't you, Ted? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had one scare where we had some breathing issues. That was something we could have done without. But um, other than that, Ted came home and a year later on his MRI, there's no uh, growth, no, no evidence of anything. So we're all feeling pretty confident that this is a, a done deal, right? Yep. However, his endocrine system has yet to come back online, as they like to say. Ted is still really struggling with thyroid and, and testosterone issues. And what was the other thing that's kind of wonky? Do you remember? No. Oh, yeah. It's your adrenal glands. Remember the little things that sit on top of your kidneys? Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, those aren't participating right now. So... Obviously, more doctor appointments with that. But other than that... They took a knee. They took a knee. <laughs> yep, they took a knee. They, they dropped out of the game for a while. So, but other than that, things are things are going really smooth for, for you, Ted, wouldn't you say? I would say so, yep. Yeah. So, being part of the Undiagnosed Disease Network, how does that... What does that make you think and feel like? I mean, I know that's a lot to throw at a young person, and you've kind of grown up as a as a rare disease patient. So what are some thoughts that you have on that? It's very rewarding, but at times it kind of makes you feel like a lab rat or a guinea pig, but then you're thinking back that you, you're helping somebody possibly down the line and helping the advancement of modern medicine. That's a good way to look at it. It is sometimes kind of hard though to relive and recount all of the things that have happened though, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. It's kind of I think we we totally underestimated the power of PTSD and what that does to a, a person who's had a lifeline lifetime of medical crisis. Oh yeah, it wages a toll on people. It definitely wages a toll, and we know that Ted definitely has some apprehensions about some things, and we try to 
talk things through and, and set up things to be successful at every given moment. But sometimes life just throws you a freaking curveball, doesn't it? Yeah. So we just find joy where we can. Exactly. So what are you looking forward to now this next fall? I kind of look at fall as like our new year because we started at the NIH in the fall of 2013. So I feel like we're kind of on our research anniversary, so to speak. So if you had to set some goals for the next year, what would those be? Probably no hospitalizations this winter. Spending as much time as I can outdoors without feeling it in a negative way. I like that. Probably just working more on my mental health as well as physical I like that. Those are great goals. Well, Ted, is there anything else you want to say to our listening audience before we sign off? No, that's pretty much all. Just stay safe and healthy. Would you be willing to come back on the show if our listeners have more questions? Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Ted. I really appreciate you coming on and and telling your story. I know everybody hears me talk about you every week and just uh, about our journey. And I think it's helpful for you to actually put a a voice and your opinion to it. So thanks. I, I really appreciate it. No problem. I love you, buddy. Thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode of Energy in Action. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ted. I know we have a lot to share and um, Ted's journey has has really uh, been remarkable. Um, I always like to consider him one of the pioneers of mitochondrial disease and research. Um, I really admire his fortitude for sticking with a lot of the questions and a lot of the poking and a lot of the prodding. Um, When your whole life revolves around health and and medical things, it can be exhausting and it can be very overwhelming. And Ted has handled it like a true champion. So again, I appreciate everyone for tuning in and listening to our, our chat. And if you have any questions, please go ahead and email me at stephanie at mitoaction.org. And I'd be happy to answer the questions. Or if you'd like to be a guest sometime on our show and tell your story I would love to have you on again just send me an email and um, we can make arrangements to record your story because everybody's story is important so remember to give us a five-star rating on your listening app this helps boost us up the charts and it helps other people find our podcast and helps them be more informed so be sure to join us next week for more all things mito and rare disease. This is your host, Stephanie, rare mom extraordinaire.